You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. What does it mean to have a good death? Many in our time use technology in an attempt to stave off aging and dying or to conceal the effects of time. Elders approaching death are frequently sequestered from the rest of society, further reducing opportunities for younger people to contemplate their own mortality. Perhaps for these reasons, the modern conception of a good death usually involves a painless, peaceful death in sleep. However, it is safe to say that the prevailing medieval and early modern ideal of good death was drastically different from today's. An entire genre of writing, the Ars Moriendi, or Craft of Dying text, centered on helping readers prepare for that inevitable transition. I'm Katie Grubbs, and here with me today on Christian Humanist Profiles is Dr. Amy Appleford, Associate Professor of English at Boston University, to discuss her new book focused on medieval death discourse and culture, titled Learning to Die in London, 1380 to 1540. Welcome, Dr. Appleford. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you, Katie. Now, you uh, point out in your introduction that much has been said and written in the past about medieval death culture. And what are some ways that, that some of those previous discussions maybe oversimplified the situation or were perhaps incomplete? Yes, uh, yes, this has been one of the main motivations for writing the book actually is, is to um, try to give a sense of the complexity of late medieval death culture um, and really kind of also really actually um, writing against these, these conceptions of late medieval death culture in two ways. There's usually, it's usually understood in two different ways. Um, one is the idea that I think is part of both academic discourse and also popular culture is that the late medieval period was really into the macabre. So that is, you know, these, these images of decaying bodies and of um, um, the different images of death and that, that the late medieval people were really obsessed with death in this kind of irrational way, uh, a way that's uh, maybe um, slightly sick or pathological. Um, and in academic discourse, that's, it's really been influenced by the early 20th century um, cultural historian, Johann Hostinka, um, whose book, which is translated usually uh, as The Waning of the Middle Ages or The Autumn of the Middle Ages, really um, was very interested and very caught and popularized this in academic discourse, this idea of um, late medieval people as being kind of um, so afraid of death that they, they were obsessed with it in this kind of um, uh, you know, weird and, and um, striking way. And I think that's, uh, it, you also see that in, in the same idea in popular culture. So, for example, you know, like Monty Python skits, um, Bring Out Your Dead, these, this idea that, the medieval, that, that, that medieval people were kind of um, surrounded by death and corpses all the time. Um, and so uh, that's the one concept of death, is that it's kind of in the period that it's actually kind of this weird, um, irrational discourse or attitude towards death. And then the other, the other attitude is actually um, really opposite to that, and it's the idea that the, that's an idealization, I think, of late medieval death practice, that it is somehow late medieval people were more, more in touch with the processes of nature, and so they were more in touch with the idea of death, and so that uh, death was health, their, their attitudes were kind of healthy in this sort of simple in some kind of way. And this is um, very much popularized in 20th century um, historiography, uh, especially cultural history um, of the Annalise School. Um, so the big writer uh, with the, who popularized, I think, academically this idea is um, Philip Aries, whose book, um, translated in English as, as The Hour of Our Death, has been hugely influential and Aries uh, names the late medieval death the, quote-unquote, the tame death. Um, and so what he means by that is that death is made, because of all the rituals around and the, the kind of familiarity with death late medieval people had, that they were less afraid of death than modernity, um, that where death in the modern period becomes this kind of invisible thing that, you know, that is never talked about. There was a more healthy, and he's, he's actually very approving of it, um, but at the same time, um, from my research or the work that I've done, it is also similarly reductive. It's almost as reductive. It's as reductive as this idea that they, that late medieval people were kind of weirdly obsessed and morbid 
um, about death, um, this idea that late medieval people died peacefully and um, that there was no fear or any kind of complexity around their relationship to death is, is also similarly, um, I think, misleading. So my book is really trying to, you know, I guess correct or try to um, um, complicate both of those, those two um, understandings of what's happening in the period. Yeah, I really, I, I loved in your introduction when you pointed out that, that oversimplifications like that just kind of shut down the conversation rather than being an invitation to realize that, realize it's, that it's, it's, yeah, it's very complex. Right. Yes, I mean, one of the things that um, those two uh, arguments or those two readings of the of late medieval death culture do is that they, they kind of obscure the way in which there is a kind of parallel with modern understandings or attitudes towards death in the sense that we, you know, we would never, we would never question the idea that our, that Western culture's attitudes towards death are kind of uh, connected to and implicated in larger socio-cultural forces and um, that the medical establishment and profession has shaped the way that people um, experience their death and experience the death of others. Um, and so the, similarly, in the, in the late medieval period, there's this, you know, death doesn't happen, the experience of death for individuals and communities doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's always in relationship to um, negotiations with the medieval church and also the, the you know, the civic and state govern, you know, um, uh, governing structures. Um, so I think what, um, what the book is trying to do is, is, is not to create um, late medieval death culture as as absolutely different from modernity, but actually as a way to, to reflect on the way that we think about death now. And that's actually um, that's actually a really great t transition uh, to my next question, Be in, as you, you're introducing the idea of connections to not just the church but also to, to civic civic affairs and, and government. How in your book you're connecting these different Ars Moriendi texts to a couple of different levels of the concept of governance, and how does that actually give the the full picture that maybe a lot of people don't know about? Yes, well, this is something that um, came out, was actually a bit of a surprise to me uh, as I was starting to see this constant, this, this, this constant recurrent connection with um, forms of governance and thinking about how to govern others, but then also how to go govern the self. Um, and this mostly emerged out of archival work that I did on early Ars Morandi texts. Um, that were obviously very much connected to changes in late medieval religious culture more generally. So, um, so it started to I started to see this this kind of pattern, and it, it sort of, which evolved into the the larger theme or argument of the book about um, how central uh, learning to die was in the conception of good governance. Um, in the period from the late 14th century up until the Reformation in England and in the you know the 1540s, um, so yeah, so that's something that is uh, I think as we're as we continue to to talk might come out. I can give a bit more detail about that about how how, how governance emerges and how it's connected to learning to die. So then, thinking about um, maybe as a as a beginning. Um, thinking about the concept of governance, and one way I think that that's connected, you, you uh, make such so clear in your book that uh, the the deathbed, at least in in that particular time, was very much a kind of communitarian space, mm -hmm. right? You know, we, you didn't have um, a person kind of alone in a room, you know, with maybe a nurse um, or whatever, but that there were lots of people there. And also, and so then in chapter one, um, 
one of the things that you really brought out is the rise of lay deathbed attendants as opposed mm -hmm. to only priests to new positions of prominence. And so um, could you just kind of sketch a little bit uh, for our listeners the, the kind of prevailing practices before that shift and then how things were after? Okay, great. Well, maybe I'll just, but I might flip and just tell you a little bit about the, the, the late medieval and then we could, I could talk a bit more about the earlier period in, in contrast. That um, sounds great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the, um, yeah, chapter, so much of uh, this work uh, and the, the kind of foundation for the argument of the book happens in chapter one, which is circles around a, a little studied, but very popular in the period death types called the visitation of the sick, um, which is an anonymous, uh, very unassuming little pastoral text um, in, that's in Middle English. Um, and it's an English text, that is, it was put together in England, and it's an insular production. Um, and it was in that text that uh, made really clear to me how, how closely bound up late medieval death practice and this emergent discourse of learning to die, or the Ars Moriendi, was with this larger trajectory of laicization, um, which is a term that's used a lot in um, the study of late medieval religion anyway, um, to talk about the uh, translation and adaption of what was previously monastic or secular clergy, that is, those who have care of souls, um, material, devotional, and religious materials, usually circulating in Latin for centuries beforehand, um, into vernacular languages, um, so, in, so into Middle English in England, um, for the use of lay people, and either by lay people themselves or parish priests to communicate um, or teach devotional praxis or doctrinal, do, doctrinal information in, in, in the vernacular so that, that lay people could understand it. Um, and so laicization, one of the impacts of laicization is that it kind of, it, 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 it both responded to and fed uh, a rising desire for, on the part of lay people for a more active role in shaping their, their, their religious or spiritual life, um, and a more active role in shaping their ultimate, you know, in, in having some kind of um, active uh, agency in relationship to salvation. Um, and so, the something like the visitation of the sick, this very early one of the earlier surviving Ars Moriendi texts, um, which uh, sort of appears in the late 14th century and then has quite a strong circulation into the 15th century, um, is that it is a text that it expands the layperson's role um, at the deathbed. Um, expands it and gives it a new prominence by turning it into a kind of script. So um, this is so the it, it's the this text mostly is interested in the non-sacramental part of what happens at a deathbed, and so ideally, presumably, it was used in conjunction with a Latin ritual, which would have been performed by a priest still. So you still have a priestly figure there, but the lay person, but the the other non-sacramental stuff actually gets much expanded and is is available to non-priestly readers and um, listeners. Um, so that it can take a very active role in what's happening at the moment of death, both in preparation for themselves, um, but also, and I think this is one of the things that's really important in that first chapter, in help it, helping other lay people die, so that for the first time you get a kind of script that enables a kind of lay ministry where lay people can help other people die. And, and a lot of the manuscripts, um, it's actually called how, you know, the first rubric is... Um, how men in health should visit should visit um, those uh, this should visit the sick, um, and so obviously this is taking a much earlier tradition of of spiritual works of mercy, um, and uh, or just works of mercy I should say, um, and expanding it and giving a kind of script to lay people that they can actually use when they go and visit the sick as as part of their own spiritual um, um, looking after their own spiritual health. Um, and so this is, uh, I, I think, very much a kind of sign of what's happening in the, what's happening in the, in the larger culture, which is this interest in lay people's interest in getting materials and using materials that previously were 
mostly the province of uh, clerical writers or, sorry, clerical readers or monastic readers and getting in them uh, and using them themselves. So before that, in terms of uh, how that contrasts with the earlier culture, um, one of the problems we run up to run up against is, of course, the, the, the relative lack of written records as we get into the earlier um, you know, Anglo-Saxon, Old English period. And so one of the things that uh, is notable and is really valuable in, as you get into the 14th century is that we have more texts that survive. So there, while uh, you, know, you can't sort of say specifically that this kind of, you can't say for sure that this kind of lay um, activity at the deathbed, this kind of prominent role um, um, that lay people took on to help other people die, could have been part of the earlier practice as well. But what's notable is that suddenly now we have a script in, middle, in English um, that's very popular and is getting copied down in lots of different devotional, you know, compilations of devotional texts, which can work in conjunction with the Latin uh, ritual, which suggests a, just a, a kind of um, intensification of interest in lay people and helping other people die. So in terms of the earlier period, there's a great book by Victoria Thompson called... Um, they just got the, I think it's Death and Dying in Anglo-Saxon England. Um, and she, what she, um, yeah, sorry, Death and Dying in Anglo-Saxon England by Victoria Thompson, which is a really, really interesting book. And she has a section on basically preparation for death. And there is no, um, again, she's not, she can point to, there are, you know, suggestions that lay people were active at the deathbed, mostly in the form of ordinances or uh, ordinances from the church, basically, or, or um, corrections from the church, um, making sure that lay people don't get out of hand or get too rowdy around the death, around the corpse, um, if they're if they're sitting up with the corpse. Um, so you can kind of try to reconstruct um, what lay people did at, at death um, from that, um, but it's not until later that we start to get um, the genre really starts to get going, and was obviously enormously popular. The, uh, the the concern you, you speak of, of the, the concern about people getting too rowdy in the death chamber actually reminds me a lot of, of early modern concerns about the birthing chamber. <laughs> oh, um, interesting, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and who knows what's happening in the birthing chamber, you know, um, but that's actually yeah, that's a, a much more secular space, obviously. Um, thank you so much for, for laying that out, because I do think it's, you know, it, it definitely seems like an, a time of vast change in terms of the prevailing practices that were happening. And one of the one of my favorite parts of the book was actually when uh, you went into one specific case of um, a particular person preparing for death. And one of the things that you really stressed in the book is that um, this kind of opportunity for for lay for lay people to participate in deathbed, also in the case of, of householders or heads of families translated into responsibility, right? Not just for um, family members, but even employees, anybody kind of living in the house. So yeah. what, does that, what does that mean or how does that work out in this example you give of Richard Whittington, who was mayor right. of London and, you know, had, I mean, a huge, huge household, you know, how does that work? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, well, the, so something like the visitation of the sick that I was just talking about, this, this early Ars Moriendi, which is uh, directed towards men in health who should go and visit sick, sick people, a lot of the copies of that survive in books that appear to have been copied for and owned and perhaps used by uh, householders, basically male householders. So, um, and these household compilations... Um, Basically, usually contain all the the rudiments of the of doctrinal rudiments and and uh, sort of basic pastoral instruction, so that a householder could make sure that his that he's he's running a godly household in some way that he because he's kind of responsible for everybody living under his roof in the late medieval period. If you're a substantial household, you know, male householder, um, both their you know what they do legally, but also their spiritual health, um, and could get in trouble in various ways, um, be held, you know, held liable for, uh, people, servants or apprentices acting badly. Um, and so, uh, so the, so the idea of helping people in your dependence and looking after people under you, socially under you and helping them die well, 
um, is, I think, yeah, it's writ large um, in the case of a figure like um, Richard Whittington, who is uh, sort of famous throughout the, you know, up until the modern period as Dick Whittington and his cat. There's different kinds of um, pantomimes and things in the 19th century about Dick Whittington. So the real Dick Whittington is Richard Whittington, who dies uh, in the 1420s. Um, and he was a very wealthy man and often a mayor of London, um, but had no heirs, had no children, which was actually um, happened quite a bit for some reason in the London um, elite figures. Um, and so he is a, he's a fascinating example of how this idea that you're responsible for um, a, the, the, the social body in some way and that death practice different kinds of death, medieval death practice, um, feed into this idea of responsibility and governance of others. Um, it, not, not only for himself, because he was, a, he was a very interesting figure, but what happened, but for what happens with his estate um, and how it's handled by his, um, his executors, um, including this really quite fascinating figure who is a bureaucrat, is a, a civic bureaucrat named John Carpenter, um, who seems to have been responsible for all sorts of really fascinating um, and complex uh, um, cultural and, excuse me, charitable um, uh, initiatives um, happening in the mid in the um, first part of the 15th century in London. <clears throat> so, what happens with Whittington is that he becomes a kind of figure for all this complicated civic, charitable, and educational um, efforts where the traditional practice of almsgiving, um, where um, a person uh, um, in their death or on the deathbed would give alms to the poor who would, to the individual poor who might cluster at the gate, for example, or, or at the funeral would get, would get alms, and people in their wills would um, uh, put aside money to be given to the poor. Um, or to help, um, you know, give um, money for clothing for, virg- you know, for unmarried women to get married. And, you know, so there, there were different kinds of charitable um, uh, expenditures, um, which would usually be understood as given in exchange for prayers, for prayers for the dead to help the, the dying individual, go, you know, make their way through purgatory. So for in the case of Whittington, it's just kind of blown up. It's like so he's got he was he he died with a lot of money, and so um, there are just several really large uh, institutional initiatives, um, the you know rebuilding parts of the Guildhall, creating this um, uh, uh, one of the first almshouses that is run not by the church but by um, a civic body. Um, so different kinds of looking after the poor. Um, educational efforts, all sorts of things happen through Whittington's death. Um, and in each case, um, you know, Whittington, all these people are starting to be amassed and organized to pray for Whittington. So he basically ends up having this kind of army of Londoners who are praying for his soul um, through the efforts of his executors. Um, and what's fascinating to me is that the actual fabric of the of the cityscape there is changed by Whittington's death so that um, you know he, he puts in they put they put in sewers on his behalf they 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 um, build build buildings they they you know um, change the face of the the, the, the structure of the, the guild hall physical fabric um, in each case you have Whittington's arms um, incorporated um, and so um, in that way his an individual's death becomes the the opportunity for these huge rebuilding, um, and in some ways it's not as that different from big philanthropy projects now. Um, but in that in the medieval period, it was there was a, a kind of a different kind of economy where prayers would would be offered for for the person um, in exchange for all this kind of ch- these charitable actions. That's it's 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 incredibly fascinating, and I, I one of my favorite parts of that particular chapter is when you were kind of talking about the the change in the space and how the entire community you said is turned into a giant chantry or almshouse dedicated to the salvation of a single individual. That's yeah, so right, and I thought that was so. It's such a perfect encapsulation in a single sentence of what was happening, and you know I, I hadn't thought about the analogs to you know, more contemporary uh, philanthropy until you said it, but it, it's very true. You know, I, as an undergrad, I lived in a dorm 
um, called yeah. the Ford Buildings because Henry Ford paid for all of it, and yeah. his name was all over yes, our exactly. campus. Yeah, and so I never. Yeah, yes. yeah. Universities are actually really good examples for that because of these educational and also these educational um, um, good good works that people are doing. Um, and it, it just has a for me, it's a fascinating connection with early capitalism and capitalism now, for that for that matter. Is that what you do with all this excess money? Um, uh, morally or ethically, what do you do at the moment of death, and you funnel it back into the community in some kind of way, and that has a, you know, that has a, that has some kind of effect. Um, in the medieval period, it would be specifically an effect on your salvation. I'm not quite sure what it is now. <laughs> I'm not sure how we think about it. It's about, <laughs> it's about uh, you know, I don't know. It's about uh, living living beyond death in, in, in solid walls or something. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, we might maybe nowadays be tempted to look back on uh, somebody like Whittington and say, oh, you know, he was using all his money to make all these things and not get, you know, and, and how, how noble he's not getting anything in return. But as you pointed out, the transactional nature of that is so important and, and something that we don't necessarily think about as much today that, you know, the, the, the prayers were the, the point, you know, and he's getting mm -hmm. these prayers to, to speed his way through purgatory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so, so mm -hmm. interesting. And mm -hmm. um, how then, uh, talking about Whittington, because like you said, he literally, his death changed the face of London. Why then is London, is that one of the reasons that London is such a perfect space for you to be examining these different developments in death discourse? Yes, well, London, um, uh, in some ways, London emerged uh, almost accidentally because a lot of the texts that I were that I was working with um, were associated with London, either through ownership or through production, or because I work outwards often from book history, because um, I find that one of the things that's really fascinating about working in a pre-print culture is that you have all this other information um, with these surviving manuscripts and these surviving books, um, and so um, it. It, it started to build in that way that it became very much about a it's a regional uh, specifically London uh, analysis and these figures like Whittington sort of start to start to emerge as 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 um, centers for the book for the study. Um, it makes a, certain, a lot of sense because London, in, in some ways, that London is uh, unlike any other city um, in the late medieval period, certainly um, and probably up until you know the 18th century. Um, because of its size, obviously, um, even after the Black Death, uh, which decimated the population of London and, and the rest of the country, um, it still was, was very large, um, you know, much, much larger than any other city. Um, it was also uh, had a really interesting proximity to the crown um, uh, so that you have a very... Uh, um, strongly independent and very carefully protective uh, urban corporation, basically, that is in this proximity to this other political center that is, you know, that is the crown. So the, the civic and crown relationships are really fascinating in the 15th century as each of them try to, you know, um, push, and then the church. So there's just like these, these three different jurisdictional, um, you know, um, bodies sort of uh, uh, fighting for preeminence. So it's it's extremely interesting, co complex culture. Um, it's also very much an international culture, um, London. Um, it has these very large and important uh, religious communities, uh, like a Carthusian house and uh, the house of Zion and Sheen. And these are monastic communities that are also huge copying centers for books. So even before the printing press and the pre-print culture, in the pre-print period, um, a lot of new books and a lot of new ideas were flowing in from the continent. So there's a kind of um, changeover and connection to continental culture, which is which is really striking as well um, in London. Um, yeah, so it's it, it turned out to be, uh, for me, the fascination is this very... Uh, active and you know changing um, and self-conscious devotional and religious culture, um, which is at the same time very much very materialistic, very competitive, um, very fast-paced, um, occasionally very violent uh, urban culture uh, at the same time as well, um, which has you know constantly um, very heterogeneous. Um, population um, from lots of different uh, social backgrounds, 
um, controlled perhaps arguably by the merchant elite, but at the same time having lots of um, urban gentry living in the city. So you just you really have a, a, a great a great variety and a great mix, which I think might be really uh, um, singular in the in the late medieval period in England. One of the other things that you, you talk about in the book too, and and I and I, maybe this is you know maybe in part response to the kind of urban chaos, but one of the things you you mention a lot is a kind of rise of um, asceticism among lay people, right? A lot of our listeners might have an idea of asceticism as something that was just kind of a monastic thing, um, right? You know, so is is that kind of is that emphasis on asceticism or, or kind of spiritual self-care, is that maybe rising up in part because of just the, the materialism and, and everything going on around? Yeah, well, this again was a, a surprising thing to me was the, uh, and this is something that I'm still actually working on in my next project, is thinking about um, asceticism at the end of the late medieval period, so in the 15th century, um, because I really found a, 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 a great stress in the surviving books of religious texts and compilations um, circulating in the 15th century on books on tribulation and suffering and how to kind of create, uh, how this was a form of spiritual, um, spiritually healthy and that this is in some ways um, uh, uh, something that should be uh, encouraged and was important to your um, um, self, uh, your, your spiritual um, selfhood in some kind of way. And I found that quite fascinating, uh, along with things like the the presence of the Carthusian house so close to the city walls, which is the you know the most um, ascetic of the late medieval monastic orders, um, uh, and things like the fact that there were anchorites and hermits living in cells in the walls of London, so that you have these these. Wow. Um, I know, it's really interesting. These permits basically in the bustle of the city, right there in the city. So it's this, the, the, the proximity of asceticism as an ideal and the capitalist materialism of the, of the city, the mercantile, I shouldn't just say the mercantile um, emphasis of the city and that proximity I find fascinating. And so some of the books and some of the, the, the texts um, that I was most interested in is how are trying to teach lay people to, um, even if they are merchants, or in the case of Thomas Hockley, the poet Thomas Hockley, who's you know a royal bureaucrat, how to create themselves as as ascetics while not withdrawing from the world. So creating a how to how to form a fashion an identity that is an ascetic identity. Um, that is, but without withdrawing from the world, so not going into a monastic house and not going into, a, you know, anchoretic cell, or, um, and so um, death practice. One of the one of the the main channels that I saw for Ars Moriendi and other kinds of pre- death preparation texts was really for people to um, kind of help fashion being dead to the world while still being dead still being in the world, basically. So imaginatively dying um, and withdrawing from the world as part of an ascesis, as part of an aesthetic practice, seemed to be, seems to me to be one of the explanations for the, um, the great popularity of the Ars Moriendi in the 15th century, not just for real death practice, but for death rehearsal as this kind of fashioning of an of a, of a aesthetic identity. One of the things I, I found most interesting that you discussed in the book as well uh, on the topic of, of asceticism and kind of turning away from the world is is the way that um, despite the, the death chamber being somewhat communitarian, the way that people were encouraged to not have um, very close family members or close friends there, yeah. lest they, yeah. they, they remain too attached to this world. That was fascinating because, you know, now we're so the opposite, you know, you, you, you right. know, you want your family there at that, that moment. It was, that was incredibly interesting and something that I, I didn't realize before, before I read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think then that the kind of that emphasis on how you, you can have and, and maybe should have an aesthetic identity, even if you are not a monk or, um, you know, walled up in a wall, do you think that that maybe uh, inevitably would progress to what you call spiritual perfectionism um, mm-hmm. as, as a process? Right, yes. Well, th- yeah, so the second, second important, uh, I think, sort of keyword for my argument is, is spiritual perfectionism um, along with laicization. 
Um, and, um, and what I just mean by spiritual perfectionism is uh, the desire that you see uh, really ha- you know, becoming very dominant in the 15th century in a small, a small, group, small group of people, perhaps, but um, definitely there in the culture, is to not just be a mediocre Christian, but to be, to be most holy, as holy as you can be, basically, um, a kind of spiritual ambition to uh, know more doctrinally, to be more virtuous, to be uh, a better Christian, um, and that is uh, what the, how that really manifests is uh, a kind of um, increased emphasis on self-scrutiny and uh, um, um, looking inwards always and trying to track down any kind of sinful thoughts or sinful attitudes. Um, and uh, that, I think, does come with um, that, that, you know, that, that, that seems like a, a, a positive, a very positive, um, attitude to have, to be more and more Christian and more and more sinless and without fault. But at the same time, uh, along with that comes a certain, uh, rise in spiritual anxiety, um, where, uh, there's a constant fear that you're kind of missing something in yourself that you, that you don't know some secret part of you that's sinful that you kind of have to track down. Um, so the kind of self-scrutiny, um, is is never ending, and I think also um, that on the other side of this this desire for spiritual perfectionism is a worry of spiritual pride. So you can strive to be most holy, strive to be most sinless, and and strive to be a better Christian um, potentially than other people. Um, but at the same time, you have to watch that you don't have spiritual pride, uh, at the same time, because that's a sin. And so there's like a, quite a, it's a, quite a tricky line, um, in the 15th century, I think for very pious and spiritually ambitious people to walk, especially if you're a lay person trying to adapt monastic, what texts that originally, or modes that are originally um, designed for an enclosed monastic community to your life in the world, um, and trying to make it work. Um, and so, um, I do think that uh, one of that that um, element that you pointed out that you that uh, some of the Ars Moriendi in the 15th century do argue that you shouldn't have family at your deathbed um, in part because they're going to distract you and put your mind more towards carnal things. Um, that is, you know, things of this world, and you'll start worrying that your wife is not going to be, you know, about the money and whether or not she's going to have enough money, and you're going to start to get really focused on this world, and and uh, and you're not going to be able to detach in order to prepare for the next world. Um, so, and this is always really horrifying to people when I give talks on this, is that this text basically suggests that you should have you know, work colleagues at <laughs> your deathbed to help you. It's <laughs> always really horrifying for everybody. But um, and so part of that's part of the the perfectionist discourse. I think is that you it's so it's it, you have to be so focused at the moment of death um, to die well that you actually really have to do a good death because it's you know your spiritual what happens to you in terms of your salvation um, is is kind of key. You rest on dying well. Um, I do think that that uh, creates a kind of uh, spiritual anxiety um, that we see in the 15th century. And my main text for talking about this is um, a, a very widely circulating text called the Tractatus de Artum Mariendi, which tr- is translated into English as the Book of the Craft of Dying. And the Tractatus is anonymous, and it's from the early part of the 15th century, and it survives in hundreds of manuscripts. It's, it was all across. It was a bestseller. It was just everybody read it, and it was translated into a dozen vernacular languages. Um, and uh, it was obviously an extremely important text. And what's and it's actually the text, the Book of the Craft of Dying, is the one that I think people who are not medievalists would, and medievalists themselves, it's not like medievalists know this stuff all that well either, um, would think about. This. It's the text that they I think is most well known. Um, and it's one the kind of text that Aries that I was talking about the early um, the analysts um, cultural historians would point to as the script that creates the tame death. Um, and for me, that seems uh, really uh, backwards because for me, this text is full of spiritual anxiety. It's it's full of of worry that you your repentance is not authentic, um, and this uh, you know that you're not that somehow you're not um, 
going to keep it together at death, that you're going to be afraid. Um, and these are things you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to be scared. You're not supposed to be, um, uh, you have to repent authentically. And so the, 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 the pressure, in some ways, the, the agency that I was talking about um, in, that we see in the 14th century um, in the visitation of the sick, that, that lay people, this became really popular in part because lay people wanted to have some agency in controlling and shaping their, their death and their salvation, their chances of salvation. Um, you know, 50 years later, or less than that, 30, 30 years later, um, this text appears that is is taken that in some ways to an extreme, extreme, so that now lay people have a lot of agency and their death, and it's actually scary, right? It's not um, it's something that you actually have to really focus, and that's why you can't have your wife in the room, for example. Um, and for me, this it, this text really uh, um, is um, you know shot through with its cultural moment when it appears, it appears in the early 15th century and is associated with um, the big, one of the big councils, the Council of Constance, which um, was called really to deal with the schism after the um, Avignon Papacy and also to deal with heresy, all these, what, what the church understood was this rampant heresy. And at the Council of Constance, uh, Johann um, Hus, who is the Bohemian reformer who took a lot of his teaching from John Wycliffe, who's a, who's the Lollard, the, the so-called Lollard, the English reformer, um, was burned, was called and burned, um, was, was called to the council and was, was put to death there. And this is the text where, this is the place where um, the Book of the Craft of Dying first kind of emerges in the circulating. So, so this text, which is usually understood as like the, the calling card of the, of the late medieval, you know, peaceful, healthy, simple understanding of death preparation is actually comes out of this, this, this extremely um, tumultuous and anxious time um, in continental Europe and also in England um, about heresy and about um, the, the, the healthiness and structure of the, of the, of the medieval church. And it, it really seems too, um, then as, um, as that kind of emphasis on perfectionism moves forward through time. I know towards the end of the book, you, um, you actually focus on uh, a Martin Luther text of a, of a slightly later, you know, period, I think, right. um, the 1519, I think, um, yeah. the sermon on preparing to die. And, and you talk about Luther attempting to kind of soothe spiritual fears caused by perfectionism. How does that, um, how does that fit with maybe English texts uh, of the same period? Yes. Well, the, um, yeah, the Luther's, Luther's sermon is, is really fascinating because it's, it's usually pointed to at the moment where, you know, a kind of breakthrough moment for Luther. Um, and for me, reading it in relationship to the earlier, what's happening uh, in the 15th century, so something like the Tractatus, um, the Book of the Craft of Dying text, is that he sort of radically sort of simplifies what happens at the moment of death, which is he's really not, in that particular sermon, he's not really interested in this kind of self-scrutiny um, and, you know, the, the cultivation and, and worry about authentic repentance, it's really about just having faith in, in Christ's saving act. And it's, so it's, it's, uh, it's really, you know, moving towards grace and, and away from, um, you know, the, the kind of um, agency that these other texts are trying to, that, that succeed, I think, in, in, worry, in, in a worrisome way. Um, of allowing lay people to 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 have a, a kind of be, that they, that there's a responsibility for them that they have to die well by kind of doing things, um, it's actually kind of um, suggests a certain kind of um, want, desiring a kind of passivity on the part of of the dying person that they don't actually have to do anything except just think about Christ and that's it. Um, so that yeah so that, as you mentioned it's the early 16th century uh, Luther's text and it becomes um, again very very widely circulated in Latin. In the in the decades following that, um, at the same time, like if you just go right across the the into England in uh, in that second decade, um, mostly what's being what's circulating and being used in England at that time is is something like the Craft of Dying still, and it's 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 um, published by Caxton and very and a few other early early print people. Um, and so, uh, and there's a few different versions in Caxton re, re, retranslates it and there's all sorts of interest in it still in the early 16th century. Um, so in the last 
chapter of the book, though, I move forward a little bit um, into the 1530s, which is the moment when we do get new Ars Moriendi appearing in England. Um, until that time, as I say, it's, it was mostly still the 15th century material, which is circulating and, and recirculating, being retranslated. But then in the 1530s, we start to, there are three um, notable um, new Ars Moriendi that come into the culture. Um, one of them written by, one of them is, an, is a text by Erasmus, uh, which is translated into English in the 1530s. Um, another one is by a Zion monk named Richard Whitford. And the third one is by a, 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 um, a cleric who's associated closely with uh, the Tudor court named Thomas Lopset. Um, and so these are actually a new, something that's new, I think, in the 16th century, um, and also short-lived, I should say. This is, this is really a phenomenon that I only see in the 1530s, which is that suddenly we start to get this, um, uh, this new meditation material in these Ars Moriendi, um, which it, they all three of them ask the reader or the person preparing to die to prepare by imagining or reconstructing in their heads the um, experience of watching a state execution, so people being drawn, um, burned, or hanged, and using that to kind of um, uh, you know, familiarize themselves with death so that when they actually die, they don't get really scared and so mess up their, you know, their, their good death because fear is understood as, as uh, certainly in the earlier tradition as a problematic state. Um, and so this is something that is not part of the earlier tradition um, in something like the craft of dying. Uh, you do, in the earlier tradition, you do kind of learn to die by watching somebody else do it, by witnessing or, and helping especially somebody else die. So the kind of communitarian aspect that, that you've talked, that you were pointing out and, and the book um, explores. Um, so that's, uh, that's not unusual, but what's very unusual is suddenly you get this kind of state, state, sponsored violence um, against a person and you use that as your meditation rather than somebody in a sickbed um, and so for me again uh, but all these texts are alive for me to their historical moment and that the inflection of the kind of there's a kind of there are certain elements that are conventional so something like um, you know Richard Whitford's text the Zion monk who had witnessed people, brothers of his orders being executed because they went and they would not um, agree to Henry VIII's assumption of, um, you know, uh, uh, of church supremacy, um, executed within like five years um, of, of the writing of this text. Um, he does recycle or reuse a lot of the earlier Ars Moriendi texts, so the Visitation of the Sick and the Book of the Graphic Nine, but then he suddenly has this meditation about watching somebody being 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 executed, um, which you which is a new note which we've never seen before, and this similarly with Erasmus, who is very much based on even though Erasmus is usually under, this text is usually understood as somehow breaking with the earlier tradition, but half of it is actually from the Book of the Craft of Dying, um, the Latin the Latin version of it. Um, but the one thing he does add is watching is watching in his case a, a, a monastic person being put to death. So, so it's very uh, very alive to the chaos of or the the change the rapid cultural change of the 1530s. Um, and, uh, and I should say though, that, I mean, that's not, this is specific to the very difficult period, uh, right around the Reformation in England. Um, and so later, um, 16th century Ars Morandi and 17th century Ars Morandi don't have, you don't see this, um, as much. It's not like a, a suddenly a new characteristic that continues. It's, it's very specific, I think, to that moment, but very shocking for me as somebody who works in the earlier tradition. We've never seen anything like that before, so... It's yeah, it's 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 very very interesting, and especially thinking about you know pondering, it, it kind of makes maybe a, a kind of logical sense to you know tell someone okay you know to prepare for your death you know think on someone you've you know you've helped in their deathbed or you know it's it's a little bit more of a of a kind of peaceful thing a more contemplative thing but it, it does seem in some ways especially to us now very strange to say okay contemplate your own death by thinking about this gruesome you know, execution mm -hmm. that you saw. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very different and, and, and kind of disturbing in that way. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite interesting in that text because the ad, your attitude towards the person dying is, 
that you're imagining in your head is is completely left up in the air. It's this weird neutral kind of description. Um, and so, uh, and you don't really know if it's, if this is a felon being executed, you don't know if it's somebody who is a religious person being executed. Um, so it's not martyrdom that you're watching, but at the same time in the 1530s, there was a kind of, because martyrdom was happening again, um, in England. So, um, these are, these are the questions that I think the, the, the early 16th century R.S. Mirandi kind of open up for, uh, for us to think about anyway. And maybe also speaks a little bit to the ubiquity of kind of, like you said, institutionalized violence that, that the writer could say to any reader who happened to pick up the text, think about the time that you saw an execution and mm-hmm. that everybody would have that memory. Is, you in, know, the, in the 1530s, yeah. Absolutely. When yeah. A, yeah, when there's a big rise, there's a huge rise of, um, of executions for felonies and um, that before were about different kinds of punishments so they became um, punishable by death. So, so there's, you know, there aren't there aren't really any numbers that are available. But in terms of the legal status of death executions, certainly went up um, um, in different parts of the culture um, under Henry VIII. Anyway, the early part of it, that that part of Henry VIII's rule. Well, and um, just to kind of, as we were approaching the end of our, our talk, um, I did want to just just a little bit um, take some of the ideas outside of the of the text for a minute. And I know I know that you're interested interested in early drama, and uh, mm-hmm. I was just wondering because I think it could be something that our listeners might actually be a, a lot more familiar with, maybe than yeah. than some of the texts. How do how do morality plays like Every Man is the one that people are most familiar with that aren't right. specifically tied to London, like some of the Dance of Death images you talk about, or some of these texts. How did they fit, though, with the same death discourses that are in the Ars Moriandi text? Right, right. Um, yes, well, Every Man's a fascinating, and I don't actually write about Every Man in the book, which is not in any detail, which is, I think, probably <laughs> going to be seen as a as a as an absence, I think, for some readers. But um, yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting text for me because um, it's based. You know, uh, on a on an earlier text, it, um, its sources are either a sort of a Dutch, 15th century Dutch language text, or um, or a uh, 15th century Latin text, and so it it kind of it kind of is a great example of sort of second half of the 15th century, early 16th century interest in dying well. And the kind of explorations that you see there, um, and so for me, that text is again very alive to the kind of expo- you know debates about well, not, maybe not explicit debates, but the kind of searching work that's being done about what it is, how does death work in relationship to salvation, um, and so it's, it's basically an exploration of that, and so. Um, for me, the the kind of order of events and uh, the kind of I don't know if you remember it or your listeners remember it, but it's kind of every man uh, sort of rifles, rifles through these different figures. He knows he's going to die at the very beginning, and he's rifled through all these different um, personifications um, to help him die, including friends and uh, you know different figures. Um, goods uh, and the place of uh, and so what ends up happening is that at the end there's kind of a the place of the sacrament on the one hand versus good deeds and which of those two are mo- most uh, efficacious for having a good for every man to have a good death uh, is sort of is explored um, and it turns out really that it seems depending on how you read the text, that good deeds are the things that are most important, and good deeds are the ones that actually um, stay with them until the end, which I think is really interesting because it's it's something that lay people can um, attain without clerical intervention, right? That's something that it's it's also um, very very much a medieval idea that you that your good deeds will help you die a good death, um, which is so, so salvation by works, which is something that is going to change its status after the Reformation, so it's really much, very much a late medieval text. Um, but at the same time, the place of the sacrament and priestly intervention versus what a layperson or an everyman could do for themselves, that's exactly what late medieval Ars Moriendi is interrogating and not actually coming to a consistent answer. Um, but that's why that's, I think that that's, um, uh, I think that's what the play is about. And it, and it's it's so true, also um, 
talking about how you know it's it's showing something a lay person can do because I think also one of the great things about that play is that it's dramatizing the kind yeah. of mental uh, process right of spiritual right. self-care approaching death you know he considers all these different things or yeah. you know attempts to gain help but in the end it's it's him alone with his good deeds facing death yeah. and yeah it's right. it's almost uh, dramatizing the inner maybe life of a person approaching death it's very interesting and uh, thanks for, for, for taking that question. I know it's not something, uh, because it's not a London thing. You know, I know it's not something that's, oh, no, that's a big, right. yeah, a big deal in the it's, book. It's, I've, I've, I've thought a lot about it, so of course, uh, and trying to understand it. I mean, for me, it's, it's interesting that it, 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 one of the sources is, is this, uh, again, this, this 15th century Dutch language play. And so um, it's coming out of really a hotbed of, of, of religious, that area of the continent is is a hotbed of religious searching. I think different kinds of um, different modes in the um, Devota Moderna um, area, uh, and also it's also associated with um, uh, mercantile drama competitions. I mean, there's it's all very um, it's all very up in the air. But that is also interesting to me because it seems to be associated with specifically a kind of mercantile interest in buying wealth. And how do you do it? And like, you know, how can you? Is it possible to? Is it possible to figure it out? <laughs> actually, get a script. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's a very interesting text in all those ways. Well, um, as we uh, as we're closing, I, I just wondered: is there anything else that you might like to add? Any final thoughts, or or maybe uh, reading recommendations? If any listeners want to know more about the Ars Moriendi. Sure. Yeah. Well. Uh, I just want to thank you again for, you know, reading the book, and I hope people will be interested in taking a look at it. Um, the, uh, the, my book is very much interested in, in the textual representations, um, so, so written scripts, but I think people coming to the topic might be very interested in the, the visual representations, which is not something that um, I could fit into my book because uh, it's a whole other interesting topic. So um, there are a couple other books if people would like to take a look at it. It's uh, is I would always recommend Paul Binsky's book called Medieval Death, Ritual and Representation for a, an overview of late medieval death culture, um, especially he's an art historian, and so um, he's really interested in the, in the visual material. Um, and Alina Gertzman, um, her Dance of Death in the Middle Ages is really just about the Dance of Death, which I do talk about in relationship to London, but she is, is sort of tracing that phenomenon across Europe. So those are two really important books on late medieval death culture of people, especially, and she's also an art historian, so coming from the visual um, angle. And then I guess the other thing that I would just mention is that for me, I always have in my head, um, what does this tell us about modernity? What does this tell us about the modern moment? And one of the things about uh, contemporary, certainly mid uh, 20th century um, theories of palliative care and, and dying well um, so people like Elizabeth um, Kubler-Ross, which is a you know very important um, theorist of of how people individuals um, should um, could face death and how they should be cared for. Um, there's a really great book if people are interested in in this. And so Kubler-Ross actually looks back to the medieval period as as a as a as a and as an ideal, or that we could learn something from the late medieval period um, about how to die well. Um, and so there's uh, and with and there and, and that's a, 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 a ambiguous thing I think um, for a lot of people working in in palliative care and thinking about how to help people die well now. Um, but there's a great book called J called Beyond the Good Death: The Anthropology of Modern Dying by James W. Green, who kind of traces the way that the medieval period is used in contemporary modern theories of dying well. Um, and I kind of see my book in some ways, although it's it's a specialist book, I, I feel I would like it to contribute to this larger conversation about about you know what is how do we teach people to die? How do we try to die ourselves? Um, and so if you're interested in coming from it from a modern perspective, I think Green's book is a great place to start. Well, thank you so much for those recommendations, and thank you again uh, for joining us today. And you're most welcome. And we, um, and just to remind all of our listeners too, we the we've been talking about uh, Amy Appleford's Learning to Die in London, 1380 to 1540, and you uh, can obtain this book from University of Pennsylvania Press. And we'll also put a link to uh, to the text to where you can buy the book in our show notes on the blog. 
Um, and uh, you can also, uh, listeners can also, if you want to leave any comments on the discussion we've been having today or, um, you know, kind of participate in this discussion, you can do that on the blog as well. And uh, you can also always email us at christianhumanist at gmail.com. I'm Katie Grubbs. And um, just also in closing, Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. And uh, also just be watching for our next Christian Humanist Profile interview. And thank you for joining us. Thanks, Katie.